On February 2023, a national citizen's inquiry began its work. The commissioners were appointed, and an incredible team of citizens-led team went across the country to some eight cities, listening to hundreds of witnesses as well as expert testimony from around the world regarding COVID-19 and how it was managed and its impact on Canadians. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. On September the 14th, they issued a special interim report of recommendations. And with me here today to discuss those recommendations is their lead counsel, Sean Buckley, and constitutional lawyer. Welcome, Sean. David, I'm very pleased to be on your show. Well, welcome. And uh, maybe you could just kind of set the stage a little bit in terms of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's got quite a background. It's incredible work. Why was it created and by whom? So, you know, now the by whom is, is the interesting question. So there was a group of us that ran the, put together the citizens hearings. Um, and so you can just go to citizenshearings.ca. And that was three days of, of testimony, not under oath. Um, people just were given time limits. And the idea was just to show that there's a different narrative to the mainstream narrative. And after that, um, that group decided we should put on national hearings in a more formal way. And then um, another group subsequent had decided, well, you know, they came up with the same idea. And so the two groups kind of coalesced and there was about 12 of us who then just started planning. Now we had made a decision because some of us are involved with other groups and we want, we wanted to structure the national citizens inquiry to be completely impartial that we don't, you know, we don't disclose who that, that group is, but, um, you know, we, we hope the proof is in the pudding in the way we structured the rules that the commission is run by and the commissioners we've selected and how we've run the hearings. So, um, and we're actually quite proud of that, but it just came, it, that's, that was the genesis. And David, thank goodness we didn't realize how impossible of a task it was and that we really didn't know what we were doing because we just plowed ahead. And then literally, I don't know how many people volunteered but it's likely between 800 and 1,000. Like nobody's wow. actually kept track, you know, in different ways, um, some in small ways and some in big ways to make this happen. So it's been, you know, it's something that everyone can be proud of because it it's just been a collective effort and we didn't have any big funders. Like, you know, we didn't have any money at all. It was quite interesting that just ordinary Canadians um, stepped up and made this happen. It really is an incredible effort. So congratulations to you and the whole team, the myriad of volunteers, hundreds of them that came together and really made that journey across the country to some eight cities. And uh, I had the honor of participating along with uh, other colleagues at Frontier in that effort. And it was interesting to hear the heartfelt stories and testimonies from citizens who'd been impacted by 
the management of COVID-19, as well as the myriad of experts. And I know it's hard to summarize, but the point is that you're going to be distilling this down with the commissioners um, to create a final report. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, so first of all, I'm, I'm not involved in the final report and nobody in the uh, NCI administration is involved in the final report because the rules create separation. So the commissioners have, um, they're on their own in, in drafting the report, which in itself is quite amazing because, you know, like a, a government commission is going to have a really big budget, even just for a writing team that will actually start writing even before they have hearings, you know, on the background and purposes and all of that. And our commissioners have had to do all of that by them themselves. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hear that it's over a thousand pages long already. And, um, and we're just trying to figure out like, when should we be, you know, when should we be expecting it? Um, so I'm thinking it's very possible that in the next month and a half or so, the whole report could be released. But we asked the commissioners if they would be willing to release a part of their report. And the reason for that was, is, is we saw that Parliament was going to start sitting again on September 18th. And the part on the test, the drug approval test, we thought was just so important that we didn't want that to wait. And we wanted, you know, Parliament to be aware of it and the provincial governments. So we asked the commissioners if they would agree to release that part of their report. Now, David, when we made that request, that was before in the public media, there was messaging about, oh, there's this new scary variant in Canada. Thank goodness we're not in Canada um, because, you know, it's circulating and it's going to break out across the world. And don't you know, we're going to need another COVID-19 experimental vaccine. Now, I, somebody told me, and I haven't verified this to be true, but somebody told me that it was tested on 10 mice. So, you know, that's pretty robust safety and efficacy okay. testing. If I've ever heard it, mm -hmm. you know, for something that we want to inject the entire population with, I, I feel confident now in Health Canada. I'm, I can't smile. I stop smiling. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, it but, really um, is. Yeah, so that's what that's um that's what we're here to talk about is is that test and what uh what the commissioners reported on and and basically they they're recommending that that the vaccinations be stopped okay so uh thanks for setting helping to set the stage here i do have a clip here from the one of the commissioners uh ken drysdale who's uh overviewing and setting up why this is happening right now this interim report we believe it is crucial to bring forth this information to the public's attention. In recent weeks, our world has witnessed a series of significant developments that have reshaped the landscape of our ongoing battle against the COVID-19 pandemic measures. The commissioners overseeing our comprehensive investigation have carefully considered the implications of these events, and we deemed it imperative to release a portion of our overall investigative report a section that is particularly relevant to the current state of affairs in Canada and the world. Just days ago, the FDA in the United States took a critical step by granting approval to new COVID-19 vaccines, raising eyebrows due to the apparent absence of completed clinical testing. 
What's striking is that this new vaccine seemed to have gained approval primarily on the strength of prior authorizations granted for COVID-19 vaccines. In tandem, the CDC swiftly followed suit endorsing the use of these new vaccines for individuals as young as six months of age. These decisions have ignited discussions and prompted questions about the robustness of the regulatory process, particularly in the face of the evolving landscape of the pandemic. Furthermore, Health Canada has also recently greenlit a new COVID-19 vaccine produced by Moderna, and it seems that this approval followed a similar path as those in the United States. Interestingly, Moderna has also announced the construction of a new mRNA vaccine production facility in Montreal, and it is reported that they expect to produce 100 million doses of mRNA vaccine in 2024. In conjunction with these developments, Dr. Theresa Tam, Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, held a press conference where she and her staff were seen wearing masks, rekindling discussion about public masking. These developments, combined with the considerable evidence presented to our Commission, had led us, led us to believe that it is the utmost importance to inform the public about the original authorization process for the existing COVID-19 vaccines. The government's reliance on the same authorization process for the new vaccine underscores the critical need for transparency and clarity regarding how these decisions were initially made. The release of this portion of our investigative report seems to seeks to shed light on the approval process and provide insights into the concerns and recommendations arising from our comprehensive examination. So to be clear, um, on September the 14th, uh, that clip was from part of that media conference that the National Citizens Inquiry held to issue an interim report that would really, given the circumstance that you were alluding to, Sean, uh, really make some very important public recommendations. And um, I want to also share with you a clip, a second one, where Commissioner Drysdale outlines the four recommendations. One, rescind the newly implemented revisions to the food and drug regulations related to COVID-19 vaccine authorization, as they permanently exempt these vaccines from the requirements to objectively prove safety and efficacy. Two, immediately halt the current use of COVID-19 vaccines in Canada that were authorized under the revised provisions of the interim order and the newly revised food and drug regulations. Three, conduct a full judicial investigation into the authorization process of COVID-19 vaccinations in Canada, with the possibility of addressing any criminal liability that might be found. Four, make all documentation concerning the authorization process and information provided to regulatory agencies by the manufacturers publicly available. These recommendations are critical to restoring public trust in the vaccine authorization process and ensuring the safety and well-being of all Canadians. All right, so Sean, given the four recommendations, can you help walk us through those four and uh, help explain the significance of them? Right. Now, I think I think your audience needs the context about so there were there were two experts that testified on the drug approval process. 
So Deanna McLeod and then myself, and just so your viewers are aware, um, I've been practicing law for 29 years and half of my practice has involved food and drug regulations. Um, and my firm, well, I wound my firm down in last August because I was volunteering full-time in the NCI, but we did drug licensing. I mean, I've testified in, in before the Standing Committee on Health as an expert in drug licensing. So, you know, I, I come at this with a little bit of expertise. And what happened was in our regular drug approval law, so you just look at the drug regulations, it would start at C.08.001 and following three things have to happen. So first of all, the minister has to be satisfied that the drug is safe. In fact, when you look at those regulations, it's all about demonstrating both safety and efficacy. So the first thing you have to show is, well, what, what is the safety profile of this drug? So the minister and the minister's health Canada, just it's not like the minister of health does this, mm -hmm. um, you know, at the minister's office, this is health Canada. So, but minister has to be satisfied that the drug is safe. And then the minister has to be satisfied that the drug is effective. Now what follows isn't written into the, the regulations, but it is a international law requirement in the Nuremberg code is the benefits have to outweigh the risks. Now you can't do a risk benefit analysis unless you know the safety profile and you know it well, and you know the efficacy profile. So once you have those two things, you're obligated to do a cost benefit analysis. And then according to international law can only approve it and allow it in the Canadian market if the benefits truly do exceed the risks in a meaningful way. Well, that's, that's our normal drug approval process. And, you know, it, it could be a totally different show on how that's flawed in itself, but assuming it works, um, everyone just thinks that the COVID-19 vaccines went through that process, that they're proven to be safe and proven to be effective, but that's completely false. So what happened was, is about a month before, I think the two filers were AstraZeneca and Moderna, so about a month before the first filings for drug approval for COVID-19 vaccines, the Minister of Health issued an interim order that exempted the COVID-19 vaccines from having to go through the regular drug approval process where you do have to prove safety and efficacy and then we go into this cost-benefit analysis. And instead of them having to prove safety and efficacy, really what happened was as a political test was substituted and you know you have to understand the dramatic conflict of interest the government found itself in because the government had purchased a whole bunch of vaccine the government had distributed it to the provinces and then the government was waiting for itself to approve the vaccines so sean you're saying i think most canadians would be shocked to hear that the vaccines that were prepared for COVID-19, their approval, didn't go through the regular approval process that Health Canada would use for any other vaccine. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. So, oh no, they they have not gone through the regular approval process. So, so this interim order exempted them from the regular process. The interim order actually exempted them from having to provide substantial evidence of safety. So when you look at the regular drug regulations, you have to provide substantial evidence of safety. 
under the interim order, you didn't. You just had to provide the known evidence of safety. In fact, you didn't even have to do that because there was a further provision saying, well, if you can't provide that, just tell us your plan on giving it to us later. And similarly with efficacy. Now, you have to understand that that was necessary because there was such a short time frame that you couldn't prove. How could you prove safety Mm -hmm. or something that was a novel technology. I mean, it had been used in small, you know, populations like terminally ill cancer patients in small numbers from which you couldn't extrapolate any, any meaningful conclusions. Mm -hmm. So it was an untried technology. We've never actually successfully had a coronavirus vaccine ever. We could never get through the animal studies. Literally 100% of the animals would die. So here we've got this this new technology to try and get around an ordinary vaccine because we failed and failed and failed. We don't have enough time to know if it's safe or effective. Like this is just common sense. So, so they had to make it a political test. The test reads, the minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion. And I'll just stop there. The minister means Health Canada and and so when it says the minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion, then, you know, what follows is mm-hmm. is meaningful. But I just stopped there because we're already in trouble with this first sentence. The minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion, because if the minister has to be convinced of what follows. Then it should read the minister has sufficient evidence to conclude. So if you have to convince Health Canada that a drug is safe, it's going to read the minister has sufficient evidence to conclude the drug is safe. That's Health Canada's conclusion. It's safe. No, it says the minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion, not the minister's conclusion. So now we're just talking about argument. So let's say this is Pfizer's application. So Pfizer just now has to be able to support the argument to the minister of what follows. So the test reads, the minister has sufficient evidence to support the conclusion that the benefits of the drug outweigh the risks having regard to the uncertainties concerning the benefits and risks and the urgent public health emergency presented by COVID-19. David, you'll notice the word safety isn't in there. So this is the test. Pfizer has to be able to argue the benefits outweigh the risk having regards to the uncertainties concerning benefits and risks and the urgent public health emergency presented by COVID-19. So first of all, Pfizer doesn't have to even argue it's safe. The word efficacy isn't in there. There's no requirement to prove that it works, let alone even to support the argument it works. So the word safety, so our normal, the minimum test, if you're looking for health outcomes, is prove it's safe, prove it works, and then and only then can you do a cost-benefit analysis as is required by international law. And if the benefits outweigh the risks, then and only then can you approve. Okay. So so I think a lot of Canadians would be confused by this. The whole point of having a government regulator, one, one position in trust, is that they're working on behalf of Canadians to ensure that whatever is approved, a vaccine, a drug, whatever, is efficacious and safe and that we can have confidence that it's not going to harm us and that the risks are minimal 
and the benefits outweigh, as you say, you know, any harm. But that's that they've kind of washed that aside. Is that what you're saying, Sean? Well, a- absolutely. And as I say, David, how can in such a short time period, how could you prove it was safe anyway? Mm-hmm. You, right. you, you couldn't. And, and how could you prove that? I mean, like safety for a novel technology that literally is gene therapy and the evidence is clearly showing that, you know, it can permanently change actually your DNA. We're not going to know for 50 years what the long-term benefits of this mm-hmm. are. This mm-hmm. is a biologic. I mean, in the normal scheme of events, we don't have a timetable in Canada, but in the U.S., you would have to test for 20 years before they would even allow a sizable mm-hmm. clinical yeah. trial to be run. Right. So, Sean, just but, but just to put this into perspective, I think people would say, well, uh, yeah, they, they did some shortcuts, if you will. And uh, we know that out of the United States, they, they used a, really an emergency military authorization to approve these vaccines. They didn't go through the regular process either, and nor did every, any other nation to my knowledge. So in that context, uh, people would say, well, this was an emergency. We had to do what we had to do because the virus was so urgent. It had such a high mortality rate. Um, but that wasn't the case, though, was it, Sean? So, well, I, I think that your viewers, so, you know, and first of all, um, David, you testified in Red Deer, and just so your viewers know, they can go to the NCI website and see your testimony. And very soon, all the witnesses will have their own page. You'll have your own witness page and your transcript and all of that. It'll be very easy for people to watch you. But we had uh, an expert, Denis Rancor, a professor at the University of Ottawa, who um, testified at the Ottawa hearing. And then he also testified subsequently um, virtually because he was looking at all-cause mortality in both Canada and other countries. And no, I mean, this this was no worse than a bad flu season. So the hype that we were getting over this, um, I don't know, maybe it sold a lot of advertising. I'm not sure. It, it definitely... It definitely created a crisis for the politicians to change things for us, but it would you you can't fudge all cause mortality. So mm-hmm. that allows the provinces to classify deaths however they want. They could classify 100 of the deaths as COVID. They we can have no cancer deaths. We can have no flu deaths. Like all of a sudden the flu didn't kill a single person in Canada, you know, where every year it you know would kill a large mm-hmm. number of us. But but you can't fudge overall mortality. How many of us die each year? And it didn't really change because a lot of this is common sense. I, I was lecturing um, in Calgary last week and I asked the audience, I said, OK, everyone who knows somebody who died of COVID. Put up your hand. And, you know, a couple of hands went up. We've got about 400 people. And then I asked, OK, put up your hand if you know somebody who died from the COVID-19 vaccine. And almost every hand went up. Now that tells me that when we were, before the vaccine, we were in COVID, people just weren't experiencing within their personal circles, people dying of COVID. So any common sense would tell us, even just from our personal experience, that, you know, this wasn't as bad as we were being told it was. Indeed. So. Those are some of the facts that frame up the context of where we are at today. 
And on September the 14th, um, we, we just saw that clip from uh, Commissioner uh, Ken Drysdale, said that, wow, there's this um, approval of another vaccine from Moderna, I believe it is, uh, for another, quote, variant uh, that, that seems to be uh, um, talked about in the United States. And then we have um, a peculiar media conference occur with our uh, medical officer of health at the federal level, Dr. Teresa Tam, and all the panel are wearing masks. So that kind of sets the stage then for the urgency that you saw to release some interim, these re interim orders. Is that, is that a fair comment or observation? Well, I, I think it was timely, because as I say, the decision was made to ask if they would release this part about the test before this messaging started. But David, when you think about it, everything that we've put up with, so us, you know, once they started promising the vaccine as the solution, um, everything is, was premised on the vaccine being safe and effective. I mean, would you agree to people's travel rights being restricted for a vaccine that wasn't safe, any treatment that wasn't mm -hmm. safe or effective? I mean, if it didn't work, who cared? And if it wasn't safe, no one should be taking it anyway. So, you know, the fact that we would, you know, be locked down waiting for this this vaccine. Well, why? If if the if we were told the truth, listen, this is purely experimental. We really have no idea whether it's safe, which is actually untrue. They they knew it was pretty risky. They, like so that that's the paradox, David is is everyone knows from the Pfizer documents that a court ordered to be released in the United States that literally thousands of doctors and scientists have been pouring over since. Everyone knows that there were a whole bunch of safety signals saying this carries tremendous risk, like not small amounts of risk. So, so we all knew anyone who who any regulatory body looking at it would know this is pretty risky, but you know, that's not what we were told. Even if we had, were told David, you know, with the absolute truth, we can't tell you if it's safe, but you know, there's some red flags and well, we have no idea if, if it's effective, like they didn't even test for transmission. They, they didn't test to see if it would prevent you from catching COVID or transmitting COVID. Well, what's if we were told that? So we don't even know if it if it works at all. And it and it wasn't even tested for what we all thought the purpose was. So all of it's though premised on safe and effective. So who will put up with any more further restrictions for us to get a vaccine if we understand, well, it hasn't been proven to be safe and it hasn't been proven to be effective. And I mean, even, am I wrong? Isn't even the CDC and the states saying all these previous shots are not gonna prevent you from catching COVID mm -hmm. now? So the first um, recommendation, Sean, has to do with uh, rescinding the use of uh, COVID-19 approvals. Is that correct? Yeah, well, actually it relates to, so David, I told you about how they changed the, the test that applied this interim order, the under law is only valid for a year. So what Parliament did is, is, or the government did rather, is they added this test permanently into our drug approval regulations, but just for COVID-19 drugs. And so the commissioners are saying, 
you have to undo this. We can't have a drug approval test where you don't have to prove safety and you don't have to prove efficacy. Right on. Because we're no longer in an emergency situation, in quote, right? Well, but the commissioners are saying it doesn't matter whether you're in an emergency or not. Yes. Um, it, you just simply cannot be approving drugs for use in the widespread population without proving safety and efficacy. Exactly. And the second recommendation is uh, halting any use of uh, COVID uh, products? Yeah. Yeah. So the commissioners are quite clear that they're recommending that all COVID-19 vaccine usage be stopped immediately. And the third one is uh, you're calling for a judicial investigation. Well, the commissioners are calling for a judicial investigation into potential criminal liability to be more specific and um, you know which is quite something so here we have four commissioners who after listening to over 300 witnesses under oath feel that it would be prudent for there to be a judicial inquiry into potential criminal liability now why why the why the reference to criminal uh, liability i think a lot of people might be surprised to hear that I don't know. I haven't asked the commissioners that question. I, I think, but obviously it, it suggests that they're concerned that there could be liability. I mean, David, we have um, a whole bunch of responsibilities under the criminal negligence and homicide provisions of the criminal code, let alone international law. I mean, if you are approving something where it's not clear the benefits outweigh the risks, you're, you're violating the Nuremberg Code. And as soon as it's clear that you may be causing more harm than good, you're violating the Nuremberg Code. And then clearly on the consent issue, we were violating the Nuremberg Code. So this whole thing, we were violating international criminal law in how we preceded this. It's just outrageous. Do you, do you know that under our regular drug regulations, the Minister of Health has the authority, once a drug is approved, if further evidence shows it's it's unsafe or it doesn't work, the Minister has the authority to withdraw the application. Do you know in this interim order, the Minister of Health took away the Minister of Health's power to withdraw COVID-19 vaccines oh. if for a full year, if subsequent evidence showed that they were unsafe or didn't work? Like on what planet does the Minister of Health take away the power to withdraw a drug if if it shows if you learn it's unsafe or doesn't work indeed yeah we're dealing with people's lives their health and uh, people of all ages including children um and then making all submissions public is the fourth recommendation yeah that that's an important one like we're all assuming that basically let's use pfizer as an example we're all assuming that pfizer would have submitted to health canada the same type of information that was submitted in the United States and that a court in the United States ordered disclosed. And just so your viewers aren't aware, I mean, it's called the Pfizer dump, just Google Pfizer dump, is, you know, a, a group was trying to get a copy of, well, what did Pfizer submit mm -hmm. for the FDA to approve it? And the, um, the FDA and Pfizer actually wanted that sealed for 75 years. Sorry, they wanted it sealed for 75 years. And a court had to order that it would be disclosed. Now, you would think if we're in a global pandemic and we are for widespread use, basically coercing the population, even if we weren't, hey, this is available, 
you would think we would want full disclosure so that every doctor and scientist interested could be pouring over the data Indeed. and we could be learning about this. But, you know, we're talking Pfizer, but what about the other companies? Nobody okay. had, like that hasn't been disclosed at all. Right. And and so that's what the uh, the commissioners are calling for. And I think that's a very prudent recommendation. And And if the government resists that, it would beg the question, why? Well, I, I think related to this is just the, the whole theme and necessary. It's necessary to have transparency. We need good information for good, healthy discussion. And it's interesting. I know last year there was a um, quite an inter interesting report that was tabled in the House of Commons saying that there were some 980,000 documents that are still sealed. They have not been released regarding the management of uh, of uh, the pandemic, and and that's that's a huge problem. We need transparency more than ever, um, especially when we come to a lot of these issues. Ra raise questions around trust uh, in decision making in government. So, what better way to have uh, a rebuilding of trust than to release these kinds of documents? Say, look, you can see for yourself uh, what we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean. I thought I knew what what you know kind of was going on until the National Citizens Inquiry started, and I kind of found myself almost like in Socrates' shoes, where like, well, I know I don't know anything now. I, it's so deeper. Like David, I would love to know. I mean, were these colleges of physicians and surgeons and pharmacies and the like? Would like. Were they under contract with the government or Pfizer or somebody else? Did they accept funds and there were conditions that they would have to support the the vaccines and the mandates? Because they all acted in a way they hadn't before. I mean, we used to have a precautionary principle and we used to really privilege things like informed consent, which are, you know, international criminal law minimal standards. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we didn't experience that. And we experienced doctors really being pressured and even disciplined if they went against the narrative. And I, I, I'm just itching to know what happened. Like, how was it that every single one and every, every single institution seemed to have fallen in line? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it's something I'd sure like to know. Well, I think you're asking the right question is that, uh, and, and you've listen to literally hundreds of witnesses and uh, expert testimony. But the question that you're asking, I think, is incisive in the sense that you're asking, how is it that when we know that when it comes to people's health, let alone other things, where there's risk and potential harm, where are the institutions, the so-called professionals, asking incisive questions to protect our well-being and our health? Where were they? Uh, there weren't well, that many, were there, Sean? And well, why were the danger? And also, no, there weren't. I mean, who other than, you know, a handful of lawyers and a bunch of freedom advocates? Um, what institution, what institution was basically even questioning the government narrative? Or like, David, we've had the most intrusive um, government and, you know, encroachment on our rights, even in wartime. And as a lawyer, I cannot point you to a single decision at any level in any province that would put a break on, you know, any level of government going forward. So here we've, you know, basically it's like, well, the charter lasted 40 years. That was the shortest 
constitutional rights document in history. So, I mean, basically we're, we've lost our rights. We lost yeah. our rights. I mean, I've had prison, I've had, you know, prisoners on house arrest that had more freedom than I had. And my only crime was living in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, and yet not a single court case says you can't do it that way, or you have to take this into consideration. It, it's amazing. It really is. And I think part of this is, I, I find this conversation um, almost schizophrenic, Sean, because, you know, this uh, COVID-19 appeared, gosh, it's, it's some three years ago now. And we've learned a lot about COVID-19 in retrospect. Um, and what I mean by that is that, it, would you agree that almost every key assertion that government authorities were uh, suggesting has been wrong. For example, we know now about, uh, what is it, the Cochrane studies now, an analysis about the efficacy of mask wearing. It's not there. We know that uh, vaccines do not prevent transmission. Uh, We know that lockdowns were not efficacious, certainly when we look at all the data and statistics in the deep dive when it compared to other nations such as Sweden that did not do the lockdown. you, you know, time and time again, we have that. But there's something else going on here, and that is the revelation of information, the receipts of emails, uh, data that show that the government decision makers, particularly, I think, of the, um, the uh, Center for Disease Control and, and uh, all those other decision makers, we know that they knew that these vaccines that they're advocating for were really quite a risky affair. Is that a fair comment? Well, right, but let's let's back up. So, I mean, you're saying we learned that masking didn't work. We learned that lockdowns didn't work. We knew that before. I mean, you look even at the World Health Organization's guidelines for a respiratory pandemic like COVID prior to this, and they would say you don't mask. Right. And you don't lock down. And the worst thing, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't vaccinate into a pandemic. You don't do that. You don't. It's, you know. It's stunning. Everything we did, everything we did went against our prior learned knowledge. And, um, it, and you know, it begs the question, because I know in the province of Alberta, we had a plan that wasn't followed. And every province had a plan that wasn't followed. And I should just clarify that, Sean. So when we say a plan, we meant an emergency management plan that took into account different emergencies, whether it was a chemical derailment, terrorism, but also a pandemic. We didn't follow those plans, period. Yeah, it's kind of like we, we spent a whole bunch of resources, both nationally and provincially, to come up with pandemic plans and we didn't we did exact opposite of what we were supposed to do so and it and you know in lockstep like it makes no like so when we talk about no institution standing up i mean it's not like we didn't know this stuff mm-hmm. and I'm, and wasn't it absurd this masking and and police state rituals like do people not think about the consequences like how is it that in canada we had to show identity papers like that. That is a police state. Utterly ritual. bizarre. Yeah. And we're in a situation where we undertook lockdowns uh, that impacted everyone. The inability of people to say goodbye to a loved one in person. 
let alone having little children, uh, having their education truncated. We did not follow best practice as we, uh, you know, had by leaders uh, that they articulated in the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, you know, including our friends, uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Yeah. Martin Koldorf and, and Dr. Uh, Gupta from Oxford. So we didn't follow these best practices. So that's kind of a sweeping, almost retrospective and update in terms of why I think the National Citizens Inquiry tabled these interim recommendations. And they're, I think, very reasonable recommendations then, given that all that we know in terms of the last three years, isn't it, uh, Sean? And I think the other thing that I find fascinating is um, the uh, commissioner's uh, administrator, uh, the Honorable Chess Crosby, uh, made a very, I think, a very incisive statement about the role of citizens in action. And I do want to show that uh, clip here and share that with the audience. The National Citizens Inquiry Commissioners have been greatly troubled by a fact established beyond doubt on the face of the exceptional laws which the government of Canada rushed to market the COVID vaccines. The Drug Safety Regulator Health Canada has not applied the traditional objective test for safety and effectiveness to the COVID vaccines and has not determined that they are safe and effective. The safe and effective slogan that you have heard repeated over and over by politicians and health officials is nothing but a marketing pitch. The statement on the Health Canada website that the COVID vaccines are proven safe and effective is a lie. Politicians lied, officials lied, and the regulator Canadians trusted to protect them has been corrupted. Like me, many of you have been duped into taking undue risk with your health and safety. In the words of the commissioners, the COVID-19 vaccines are neither safe nor effective. Don't take my word for it. Go to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca and verify for yourself why the commissioners say neither safe nor effective in their report and in their national press conference today, September 14. Tell your friends and loved ones, neither safe nor effective. Spread the news on social media, neither safe nor effective. If you have talk radio open line shows like I do in this province, call in, neither safe nor effective. Pick three witness testimonies at random and watch them. Your life will be changed. Write your member of parliament and provincial representative and demand they inform themselves about Health Canada's dereliction of duty and ask questions in the House. Print out the pages of the portion of the report neither safe nor effective that the commissioners have released and give it to elected rep representatives or send them the link. They respond to pressure. As a former legislator, I should know. So we've seen that powerful call. They weren't safe and effective, uh, as uh, Chess uh, so powerfully comments about. But the role of citizens here is very special, isn't it, Sean? What are your thoughts around the importance of citizens' action now as we face uh, 2024? So, you know, David, hopefully I can get a little religious on you just because um, during the National Citizens' Inquiry, it, like the whole thing wouldn't have happened if, if God wasn't stepping in and intervening. Um, and he was giving us a message, wasn't he? And, and not just in the openings, but in 
from other witnesses that we're not alone and that we don't have to be afraid anymore. But now what what's happening is he's making it clear we're in a we're in a war. This is an information war. I think it's more dangerous than the bullets and bomb type of war. And you're drafted. You you don't have the ch- you don't have the choice anymore of sitting still. And if we want to get these extremely common sense and reasonable recommendations of the commissioners adopted, then what we need to do it's up to the citizen. Like don't ask how is the NCI going to get it adopted? What are you talking about? We're a handful of citizens that just put this together. It's all about you. What are you going to do to make this happen? Because it's actually your responsibility. It's not my responsibility and it's not, you know, the other small group at the NCI. What are you going to do? So why don't you contact your MP? Why don't you contact the prime minister? Why don't you contact the minister of health? Why don't you phone them? Why don't you write to them? Why don't you send them a copy of the report? Meet with your MP. Like there's tons of things you can do. And we need to get other people watching the NCI, David, including your testimony, which actually was quite emotional. So I invite I invite your viewers to watch your testimony. But if people will watch even three witnesses, we've learned that like they get hooked and they just keep watching and then they're going to be laughing, they're going to be crying, they're going to be everything else in between. So we have a campaign called This is Canada where you just print out, we got a PDF, print out 156 copies because Canada is 156 years old and drop them off in your neighborhood mailboxes. And if you don't want to talk to your neighbors, go to the next neighborhood. But it's something simple you can do. And if if you know you drop off 156 and 10 people start watching, you've changed those lives and the people those people interact with. Like the point is we have to get involved. We all know that the world is upside down and we need to take personal responsibility. Wow. So what a powerful challenge to every citizen to not just simply watch, but stand up to speak up and to get involved because you know, I, I think the irony here is that a lot of political decision makers are really not based on public policy, and I'd have to look at, you know, each specific case in point. But a lot of decisions are kind of led by, dare I say, public polling, uh, the sense of what does it take in terms of popular decisions that will lead to a continuation of people's power rather than necessarily what's principled or what's the right thing to do. So in this case, citizens actually have probably more power than they realize. Is that right, Sean? Is that your point? Oh, a- absolutely, David. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting because I was I was speaking to somebody in Alberta who's, you know, connected with the uh, the provincial governing party, the UCP, who was saying, well, during COVID, so each constituency has, <clears throat> you know, a a board of about 30 people that are just meant to be sounding boards for the MLA. And when this pandemic was happening, the MLAs would be going to their constituency and basically getting the feedback. Oh yeah, mask us, lock us down, all of this. Can you believe it? So, you know, when your, your feedback is, yeah, go ahead and take our rights. And, you know, politicians seem to be more concerned about, you know, getting reelected. Like they're going to regret this one. I mean, I, I, I wonder which sitting, you know, MPs and MLAs that were not re- actively resisting this, like today, like, so David, I live in the province of Alberta. 
today we will be vaccinating children for the first time in Alberta. And I mean, kids that haven't gotten wow. the COVID-19 vaccines yet. Well, I challenge anyone to point out a, a healthy child without comorbidities that died of COVID. It just, it's a zero risk to them. Mm-hmm. And yet we know that these vaccines are tremendously risky. Who's, you know, the kid that used to mow our lawn has myocarditis and can't anymore. I've, wow. I've never heard of a kid getting myocarditis. I've never heard of teenagers dying in their sleep and preteens dying in their sleep. Like who's ever heard of this type of thing before? We all know it's the vaccine. We're pretending it's not. And yet we're continuing to vaccinate kids. So how are our, you know, our sitting governments going to avoid criminal liability going forward when we have all this data just screaming at us mm-hmm. that that we're literally committing homicide and criminal negligence causing death and bodily harm by vaccinating these kids? And how are these public health officials going to avoid criminal liability going forward? I don't know. Yeah, it's a great question. So, Sean, from your perspective, what are the signs of hope that you see that uh, the tide is turning, that there are people who, as citizens, as Canadians from coast to coast, are waking up and saying, I'm going to I'm going to change this. I'm not going to just go along with what the authorities have said or how they're writing history here. Where are the signs of hope from your perspective? Okay, so, David, let's let's just be honest with each other. When this first started, I was terrified. You know, I I figured it out about 10 days in that we were being game. But until then, I was terrified. And then once I figured out what was going on, I was more terrified. And we were isolated and we were divided and we didn't have any idea what was going on. It's it's funny. I was at a lecturing in Morinville last week and it was, you know, about four or five hundred people. And I asked everyone put up their hand anyone who thought the army was going to go door to door dragging people that were unvaccinated out of their homes and vaccinating them almost every hand went up wow now that means that within that audience people felt it was so bad that the army might actually go door to door to make sure that everyone's vaccinated that's that's as extreme as it gets having the army impose a medical treatment on people and they also we're fearful that unvaccinated people would be put into camps. So, David, when somebody, because this is an information war, there is an agenda here, there is full-on censorship, and there is propaganda in a way that we've never seen before. Now, whenever there's a war and and you're surprised, the, the, the defending side is surprised, you get rolled over for a couple of years. You know, if you last that long, I mean, in the Korean War, literally, you know, they would look behind themselves and go, oh, that really is the ocean behind us. I mean, they Mm -hmm. were backed into a corner before they were able to hold the line and then slowly push back. You know, I mean, in World War Two, I mean, the Germans were in the suburbs of Moscow before the rains came. Mm -hmm. Like, so why are we surprised that we've been rolled over for a couple of years and that we were disorganized and we were terrified and we were afraid. That's normal, but that's done now. I mean, if they lock us down again or require us to do masks again, we've been there, done that. Like really, you don't have to be afraid. You can work full time at stopping this. And I think, and I'm seeing it, David, is people are understanding 
they have to be involved. This is a war. There's going to be a cost. But what institution is working for us? And if we don't get them all back, and I'm not just talking governments, I'm talking about, you know, colleges and regulatory boards and the whole thing, the courts, we have to get them all back on track. And the way to do that is by getting involved ourselves. So, you know, I love Take Back Alberta as a model. So that group, now it was party specific, but, you know, a relatively small number of people just decided to join the UCP and to force a leadership review and then to get like-minded people on their policy board and start changing things. Well, we need to do that for all three parties, David. And we need to do it federally. So, and we need people getting involved at the municipal level and the provincial level. The power is in the institutions. You have to join them. You have to be a, a rational voice inside. And I think the biggest lie we've we've lived is, is we were taught, and not explicitly, but we were taught we didn't have to be involved. We didn't have to be going to the school board meetings. We didn't have to be going to municipal council meetings. We didn't have to be involved in party politics. We didn't have to be involved in our professional colleges. Now, we weren't told we didn't have to. We couldn't. But it wasn't drilled into us that we needed to be. It was we were taught by omission because the reality is, is we've allowed a small group of very focused people with a very focused agenda to basically take over all of our institutions. We just need to take them back. And I think people are ready to do that. Well, thank you, Sean Buckley, the counsel for the National Citizens Inquiry for your challenge to take our country back and to get involved. Citizenship is not a passive exercise or role. So thank you so much for joining us and overviewing these important interim recommendations by the commissioners. And we thank you for your leadership and your courage. Well, David, I, I thank you for having me on our, your show because it's shows like this that actually share truth with people and makes a huge difference. And I think most people don't understand how much work it is and what a sacrifice it is for you to do this. So I really thank you for what you are doing and what the Frontier Center is doing. Well, thank you, Sean, for your kind words. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.